everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire. And all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up, and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am here with Rob Levitt. So I've known Rob for many, many years. Um, he is running Public and Quality Meats. He is incredible butcher, charcutier. Um, man, I can't even, how many years ago was it that we met? You were at the, um, that, oh God, I remember you had just opened that whole new complex. You were breaking down whole animals in that store. That I, and Yeah, so that, that was, um, I forget what it was called, but it was like a little food festival in Chicago that Paul Kahn and Jason Hamill started. And that was like, that was a moment for me because I, there was a panel discussion about whole animals and it was you and Fergus and Cosmo was still working for Paul. And then they asked me and I was like, nobody, but I was, so I was like getting called up to the majors. It was like insane that I was going to be doing a panel discussion with Chris Cosentino and Fergus Henderson. And like, I don't know, it was that, that was the first time you and I actually met face to face. What you that- don't remember is that years and years before that, I had sent you a couple of emails on a couple of different times asking for advice on everything from where to get the cool like cross strap case and aprons that I coveted to advice on how to use uh, chicken intestines in a dish because I saw it on your website. And years before that, you were one of three websites that I would look at every day. I was a sous chef and I would go and I would look at Oliveto. There's this place in Portland that closed and, and Encanto. Every day, part of my routine was looking at your website and looking at your menu. So Crazy. my history with you goes back a lot farther than when you and I actually met. So the fact that I'm sitting here on this podcast means way more to me than I, uh, than I'm, than I can express. So thank you. <laughs> That's so crazy. It's yeah. funny because like I think about, I remember you, you were breaking down whole animals in the back of this. It was a restaurant slash store. You had, yeah, whole, you had whole sides of beef. You had sides of beef. And I mean, you were breaking down whole pigs and, and, and lambs mm. and, and, and goats. But I mean, you know, being in, northern california we don't have we didn't have access what we had access to sides of beef we just didn't have the space right and you being in chicago that is the norm right you are Mm -hmm. the epitome where you are was like the center of it all in 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 my mind you know it's like without upton sinclair's the jungle and the Mm -hmm. stockyards we wouldn't have the rules and regulations we have today and i think that i had not been able to be around that before other than going to a slaughterhouse and going to participate in animal harvest at a slaughterhouse. Sure. So seeing it in, in literally a side of beef come in and you just like tearing it down. I was kind of, I was overwhelmed by it because the, the size of it was massive, but then you start to look at it breaking down a pig and it's like, Oh, the cuts aren't too different. Sure. No, it's, I mean, it's very much the same. It's just, everything is big and heavy. Yeah. And you know, like the thing about beef is that, the seams will just kind of disappear. So you have to make that decision. Like, do I, do I take the time and be real careful and try and follow it? Or do I just, and go for it and, you know, hope for the best. And there's a little bit of both involved. 
Um, my whole thing with butchering goes back a little bit farther than that. Like when I, so in 2008, my wife and I opened a restaurant and that's where we, this was like, we were open maybe, I think public had opened in September of 08. We opened in April. Um, and we had decided that. So Rob, let's do this. I want to know how you got to that point of opening. So let's start at the beginning. Okay. Of, of where it started for you, because I think a lot of people don't realize how much work it got for you to get to opening your own place. Sure. That is the big thing that I think is missing right now. It's like, there's a lot of trials and tribulations. There's a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of failures. We all have them. And how mm -hmm. you got from when you started and said, okay, when I grow up, I'm going to smell like a goat when I go home every <laughs> night, right? To opening your own restaurant to then being where you are now, right? And sure very unique trajectory and especially with butchery and whole animal work which is is not the norm for sure and that you know like not the norm is i think kind of a theme for my career whether i want it to be or not um you know i i was a i was in college i was studying music i was a big jazz nerd still am um but i you know i, I thought i was going to be a musician and you know you think it's hard to make a living cooking playing jazz is pretty impossible. Um, and I thought I was going to be a teacher and I knew that I would be a terrible teacher, which is funny because I love teaching now. Um, but I got a job as a dishwasher and it's a little like college town, hippy dippy. It was like a little grocery store and they had a little deli counter. And so I was washing dishes and then just thought it was the coolest place. Like the head cook was also a musician and you know, there was a, it was like a seat. It was like a, you could make a show out of it. There was like a, a scrappy older woman who baked bread and would like spray you with egg wash if you said the wrong thing. Like, I mean, it was, it was so cool um, in the weirdest way. But I, so I went from dishwasher to prep cook and then um, like just really got into it. So I started watching, this is, this is 1997. So the Food Network still had a lot of cool stuff to offer and PBS still had a ton of great cooking shows. And, you know, the travel channel, there was a lot of, there was a lot of information to kind of get a young kid going. Um, and then there, you know, like what you're sitting in front of, like, that was my, that was everything. Like I had stacks of books everywhere I went and I still liked playing music, but I was getting away from it. Um, because everything that frustrated me about trying to be a better musician was like, I was in fifth gear with that stuff with with food. Like, you know, I would go into the practice room and I would practice for eight hours, you know, and I had these lit prep lists essentially of what I wanted to practice. And at the end of it all, I didn't feel like I got that much better. Like the information that I was trying to consume was I was digesting in tiny little pieces. And then I would go to work and I would read a stack of books or I'd watch a TV show and I would process this information about food so much faster. And it was so much more natural to me. Um, and I always, it was always a frustration as a musician that I would see other guys practicing and I would see the results. And it just never happened that way with me until I got to food. So I got a job. There was a restaurant in town, an Italian place. The owner had been all over Italy and they did, they, they made fresh pastas. They made, uh, you know, they rolled pasta. They had an extruder. I mean, who had an extruder that you know of in 1997? Who cared? Like, well, you know, I know what I'm saying. saying. Like, that's, those were so, extruders were so hard to come by back then. Of course. Non, um, non, not even a conversation piece. You were like, a what? Yeah. I mean, nobody even thought about that stuff. 
No, it was dried. Um, you bought dried pasta. If you wanted those shapes, yep. you bought them dried. Yeah, or you made, you know, shitty ravioli, you know, or something like that. Like, but but we were making pastas. We were making like all the desserts were made from scratch. We were making pizza dough, um, you know, like for real. Like everything was like real cooking. So and where was this? But where was this? This was in this was in Urbana, Illinois. It was called Timponi's. Um, and the, the CDC was this guy who had been, I mean, at that point he'd already been there for 10 or 12 years and he had this big house just outside of town, huge garden. We used to go to his house after service and cook all night. It was great. It was one of those great stories where it was like, I'd go up to him and be like, Hey Jim, I don't know how to break down a chicken. And then after service at midnight, we'd go to the 24 hour grocery store and we'd buy six whole chickens. He'd show me one and then I would have to break them all down. And then while his friends were smoking pot and playing video games, we'd be cooking and then we'd feed them all. And he paid for everything as long as I did the dishes. That's amazing. Yeah. And we did that all the time. It was like, Jim, I don't know how to, I don't know how to break down a beef tenderloin. He would go to the store and buy three beef tenderloins, pay for the whole thing. And he'd show me one and I'd do the other and we'd cut them up and we'd be cooking steaks and making sides and veggies and stuff. And it was just like, you know, every couple of weeks we'd have one of these, I'd get home at four in the morning and, but it was amazing. Like, just to have that on my display. Like I'd cook all night at the restaurant and learn stuff from him. And then we'd go to his house and cook some more. Um, so it was, it was a pretty, pretty cool time. And it really solidified my desire to do this. So, you know, I moved back home with my parents after I graduated and I worked in an old school French restaurant, like pretty cool, well-known French restaurant, learned a ton. Uh, and then I went to the CIA and I left the CIA thinking I was going to go into like fine dining. Um, you know, I met my wife there and I worked in New York city for a while and, you know, had, hadn't the slightest thought in my mind that I would ever want to butcher an animal. It was like, no, we get all that stuff in, somebody else cleans it up. And then, you know, when we cook and we make fancy food for people who can afford it. And, you know, I was more interested in squeeze bottles and, uh, you know, drizzling sauces and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then, Fast forward through all of those weird times in our career as cooks where we we take the the wrong job for the wrong reasons. Um, and I and landed not, a sous chef. You know what I think? <laughs> this is a good, this is actually a really good point where I'm going to step in because, okay, <laughs> you talk about that. Like, okay, so you're working in New York and you're, mm -hmm. and, it, and at that time, and what year was this? That was, uh, so I did my intern, uh, would have been 90. 2000 ish and then i worked so I, I interned at park avenue cafe so i you know i was when i started culinary school i was older than everybody in my class because i'd already been to four years of college so my brother lived in manhattan and i would or he lived in new jersey whatever it doesn't matter i would drive to new jersey on friday night and i would uh saturday morning i would go to a different restaurant in new york city and i would stop and then you know stodge for a day or two and then go back and then so i i went to park avenue cafe and I, I ate there and I thought it was great. And I staged there and uh, it was just, it was an amazing place. Like the cooks were a, just a different level than I had worked with in Chicago at that point. Well, not really even in Chicago in the suburbs, but, um, but still good restaurants. Um, and, you know, one guy pulled me aside and he's like, listen, if you're here because of David Burke, like he's, he's never here. Um, but if you're here because you want to learn how to cook, like these guys, the sous chefs and the CDC, a guy named Neil Murphy, who I'm still friends with to this day, 
everybody like, knows these guys. Murphy. Everybody knows Neil. Anybody in this yeah. business knows who Neil Murphy is. Well, everybody should know who Neil. He's, exactly. He is. I have so many stories. Um, but they're like, this guy will teach you how to cook. And then basically what the guy was saying was, it wasn't really just about Burke, because Burke's a legend. You know, he's, there's plenty of, as we discussed, there's plenty of stories about him, but he's a legend for a lot of, a lot of great reasons. But, you know, it basically, if you're cooking in New York City because of celebrity chefs, then just leave. If you're here because you want to learn how to be a great cook, then this is a great kitchen. And so I took it seriously. And pretty much from then on, from that point until my internship started, every Friday, I would finish class, drive to my brother's house, take the bus into the city and work at Park Avenue for the weekend. And I'd work through Sunday brunch and then I'd go back to school. Um, and then when it was time for my intern, he, they, they were just like, yep, just, you know, let us know when you're starting. And so I worked through that, did the same thing when I went back to school, a little bit less because I'd met Allie at that point and I wanted to spend weekends with my new girlfriend. Um, but I still put some time in. And then um, when I was getting ready to graduate, Neil was the first guy I called. And I said, if you have anything, you know, I'm yours. Like it was, it never crossed my mind that I should go see other kitchens. I wanted to be back there with those guys because it was just nonstop education. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean, it was old school New York City. Like I got yelled at, I got, you know, pushed around and called things that would not fly in a the kitchen these days. Um, and I saw things that were an HR nightmare every day. Um, but there was this kind of understanding that we're all here to produce really great food and to be better every day. And I learned so much. And I, and I, every time I see Neil, I tell him there isn't a day that goes by where I don't think about something that happened in that kitchen for the three years that I was there, that, you know, whether it's a recipe or a dish or a story or something, there's something that comes up just about every day of my working life that reminds me of that kitchen. Uh, so hugely much, impactful. There's so much powerful stuff that came out of that restaurant, right? I think of, oh, yeah. I can think of dishes off the top of my head, right? Mm -hmm. That changed, I would say, the face of, of the, like the culinary landscape in New York at that time, like the sure. inventive, the creative, the playfulness, but yeah. all able to be done during service like they really figured out how to do stuff i remember i think i still have it over in the corner over here the art culinaire with the park ave cafe mm -hmm. full spread, like cooking uh remember the salmon cooked in the wine box mm -hmm. in the, in i the never box. had to do that thankfully that was like and he used to do that during service he used to get wine boxes and cook the salmon in the mm -hmm. wine soak it in water put it in the oven cook the fish People are like, yep. what in, is going on? Or Angry Lobster, right? Yep. With Well, the big one is the swordfish chop. Yep. And it was like really campy. Um, but like, you can look at it two ways. First of all, who was cooking fish collars then? Like everybody's doing it now. It's cool and they're delicious and everybody's cooking fish collars now. But like, you know, maybe you on the West Coast, but really who gave, who knew about fish collars? So he took swordfish collars and had the guys French them. The food cost was horrendous on them because of all the waste. And, you know, there were nights when we couldn't get them and we would have beautiful swordfish steaks and nobody would, in the dining room would want them because they wanted, they wanted that French bone and they wanted the little tag. So the two lessons there were like fish collars are delicious. And as a chef, you also have to be a marketing genius because we would sell fish collar after fish collar, you know, chop after chop because of those little tags with the numbers on them that they had made up. 
Like it was the stupidest thing. And swordfish collars, to be, to be quite honest, are not the best fish collar you can eat. There's yeah. so much connective tissue that half the time you put it on the grill and it falls apart. But it was, it was a brilliant move. I mean, scarcity creates demand, right? And yep. I, yep. that was momentous. Um, yeah. I think about all those different things that, you know, the, his playfulness in plating, his creativeness, you yep. know, pastrami'd um, cured salmon, right? Yep. Massive. That you can now get that, right? Everywhere. Yeah. Because yep. of him. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that was like the big lesson learned was that whether some of these dishes are delicious or not, at least he's thinking about food in a different way all the time. Yeah. You know, like there were things that didn't work, like when he would take whole quail, like glove bone quail, and wrap it in pig skin and try and like confit it and deep fry it. You know, like maybe we could figure out a way to make it good, but that what he was trying was not working. Um, you know, and I think the idea was he wanted a nicely cooked quail with, with like a chicharron wrapped around it. But um, yeah, whatever we were working on then wasn't wasn't working. Um, you know, and there was another one where he like he. The, like the salmon bacon and the salmon pastrami were great. He tried to do like a salmon ham. So he was telling the sous chef to see if he could get whole salmon tails. And he wanted the like French in between, like this much in between the, the you know, the, the fin and the, you know, like that much of it. So it looked like a bone in ham. And he wanted to like brine it and smoke it. And he thought like in his mind, there was going to be like servers in the, in the dining room, like carving it like a ham. And it just was kind of weird, but, but you know, at least it kind of got that bug going that like not everything has to be what we know. Like we should be thinking differently about everything. But look now, think about what year was that? You know, 99, 2000. Okay. Now you have a chef who is in Australia. Who's doing that. Mm -hmm. How many years, right? Nyland. Yeah. Doing those things. David was so far ahead. Yeah. In so many ways. I mean, it's it's not figured out are now being figured out. But yet he was the catalyst for all those conversation pieces. Sure. And, it, you know, it's it's it speaks to uh, I don't know. It just speaks to his his I, I, to his brilliance that it take, took 20 years to, for someone to figure out how to make a fish ham. You know, like it seems silly. And if, and we were all these young cooks who were like, oh, what's he doing now? This is stupid. But it's like, well, once somebody figures it out, it's actually kind of cool. It's very cool. Right. Like, yeah. So you're you're at Park Ave for in total mm-hmm. with your internship almost four years, right? Like that's a long yeah. time. That's a yeah. that's a big chunk of time. And that says a lot. We don't see that not now a lot of days, right? That that no way. that loyalty. Um, I think loyalty pays off in dividends, right? It pays off in education. Of course. Um, and you can really have a lot of legs to stand on before you move to the next location. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that where I am now, I have employees that have been there for a long time. My sous chef has been there for 10 years. He started as a food runner and then he, he went from, instead of continuing front of house, he went from food runner to a retail butcher down to production butcher. And now he's, then he was a supervisor and now he's a sous chef. I mean, he's, he knows everything. And I like, I, you know, and I'll tell him this as often as I can, but like, I often feel like I'm luckier to have him than he is to have me. Like he like, you know, he'll tell me very flattering things. Like, you know, he's learning a lot from me in these past couple of years where he's been in management, like, you know, it have been very good for him, but 
to to have to have everything that he brings to that kitchen is such an asset to what I do that like I'm there are just no words like he's hugely important to anything that I do and especially anything that I do successfully um you know and he should know that and anybody who walks into PQM should know that it's you know it's it's not about me and it's not about Paul it's about the teams that we put together and you know and like we we are lucky that we keep people around for a while and I think it shows so you're you're you've been at in New York where where does that go from there like you you're like okay New York stint is over I'm tired of living in a small apartment yeah. mm. <laughs> man that apartment was weird I lived up in Queens um so yeah so I was at uh, Park Avenue for a while and then I I quit and I I told Neil that I'd, I still love my job and I don't really want to quit but I know that my time in New York is is coming to an end you know in the near future um and I want to see another kitchen and he thought that was smart like he supported that idea and was not at all mad at me and uh, and that helped helped me leave um, but I had gotten a job at Veritas with Scott Bryan. Oh, and, my. Right? Oh, wow. So, and my, Allie, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was working in pastry with Claudia Fleming across the street at Gramercy Tavern. Um, so, you know, and so while I was working at Park Avenue, I was off every Wednesday and Allie had to work. So every Wednesday I went to Veritas and I stopped every Wednesday. Um and so finally, uh, he was going to start putting a tasting menu, uh, like a degustation on his menu. And he was like, I need another cook and you're the first call I'm going to make. And like, that was great to hear. Um, so I put in my notice and I took out like a week or two off. I proposed and then I got back to New York City and was like, all right, I'm going to start my new job at this really cool restaurant. And then so that was 2001. And my start date at Veritas was September 15th, 2001. So, as you can imagine, September 15th rolled around and New York City was not the same. And uh, I didn't have a job. So that was hard. Uh, a lot of things were hard. Um, like seeing the smoke from Queens all the way down in the financial district was, was really hard. Um, so, you know, I made some calls and actually Scott made some calls on my behalf because he knew that, you know, it was going to be hard to find a job. Um, and I wound up landing a cook job at a place called Elo. It was in the Bryant Park Hotel right across from the library. And uh, it was uh, Rick Lockenden, the guy who had been at the River Cafe for a long time, um, had just like right before 9-11, had just gotten three stars from the Times. Um, and so it was like, you know, it was down for like two days. And then all the billionaires in New York City needed a place to go eat. So they went there. So that place really didn't lose much in the way of business. Um, I didn't really love it there, but it was a good job. I was the poissonnier in a very regimented European style kitchen. So it was me and the, you know, the roast guy, we worked across from each other and I cooked all the fish and made all the sauces and I had my entremetier and we had, you know, so I didn't really love the place and I didn't really love the food, but it was a job and there was a lot to learn. I was like, well, at the very least I can get really good at cooking fish and I can get I can learn this classic system. And I did that for a while. And then, um, then we got an opportunity to move back to Chicago, um, which was really more on Allie's side. She got a, offered a pastry job at a, at a pretty well-known place out here 
and it it fell apart pretty quickly for a lot of reasons. So we won't get too deep into that. But um, but it brought us to Chicago. So, um, you know, bounced around. I took a couple sous chef jobs that probably weren't the best fit for me. You know how it is when you move to new, a, a new city. It's like you take all the jobs that everyone should warn you are dead ends and disasters. You know, and like I mean, both you, of us, you, you come to the new look. You come to the new city. You're not really sure where to be and where to go. You're too afraid to reach out and ask the community what's going on mm-hmm. and if this is a good opportunity or not. But a lot of times, it's the place that has these openings, and there's a reason there's still those openings, and you take yep. them because the new guy or the new guy in town doesn't know the backstory. Exactly, and that that happened to both of us a few times. Um, including my first chef job at this little cafe. And, you know, like they knew all the right things to say. So I sat down with these people who own this place and they said, you know, we love Zuni Cafe in San Francisco. And I was like, well, who doesn't? I mean, it's like legendary. Like, you know, like I've read the book cover to cover and like, they're like, we want our little place to go from being this little coffee shop with food to being more like, Chicago Zuni Cafe. And I was like, sold. You know, I couldn't wait to start and I had all these ideas and yeah, I didn't know anything. Um, I certainly didn't know how to run a, a restaurant, but you know, I wasn't prepared to take on that kind of a challenge. And they didn't really want that, that they just wanted somebody who knew how to cook that could cook for the, you know, that's a husband and wife. So they would bring their friends in and they'd be like, Oh, we're going to sit over there. Why don't you make a menu for us? And it was like, it was, it was all kinds of terrible. And, you know, and this is back when you still called in orders, like called and talked to a person and placed orders instead of texting or emailing. Um, and there was this, this young woman who answered the phone at our fish company every night and she and I got friendly and I said, Hey, you know, I'm thinking it might be time to move on from this place. If you know of anybody and like who better to ask than the person who opens answers the phone at, at the fish company, you know, talks to every chef and sous chef in town. And so she introduced me to a guy named Dean Zanella, who he's another, you know, kind of lo- like local hero, done a lot for Chicago, but isn't maybe as widely well known as he should be. And so Dean made great food and um, also an Italian restaurant. He made great food and he did really great things. And uh, he was he is incredibly intelligent when it comes to the business side of things, taught me all about food cost and like and running things and was a good manager and taught me a lot about managing people and working with people. Um, but before it was like a thing, he was buying from farmers. And now we were downtown in a hotel. Uh, it was one of those rare situations, it was a Kimpton hotel. So, you know, you're familiar with Kimpton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but it was one of the rare occasions where the restaurant was independent from the hotel. Hotel had their own kitchen. They did room service. They did banquets. We were just a restaurant. Our only tie to the hotel is that we, we had to be open for breakfast. So I got lucky. We had all the benefit of being in a hotel. We were also right next to a very busy theater. So we were busy. We had um, we had a year or two of The Lion King before it hit Broadway. So we were doing anywhere from 275 to 375 a night for a year and a half, like every night. And that was between 4.45 and 7.15. So just getting demolished night after night after night, <laughs> you know, and on like big occasions, like in December when it was getting close to the holidays, I mean, there were times, I think, I think uh, 
like right around Christmas. And then I think maybe Valentine's day, there was a special showing at the theater. I think we did like four twenty-five, two floors between four forty-five and seven fifteen in the evening, you know, and for the rest of the night, we'd do 20 covers, but we would do four twenty-five. It was insane. I mean, it was, there was so much to learn, but that's where I started learning about buying from farmers you know, because we were a volume restaurant. So when we bought artichokes, we would buy a two giant farmer crates full of baby artichokes that we'd have to sit there and turn. Um, I mean, everything, but, but we would get our chickens and we would get all of our meat would come in from these amazing farms. And um, around that time, my mother-in-law gave me a copy of Cooking by Hand by Paul Bertoli. You know, obviously Allie told her that's the book I wanted, but, um, but yeah, that was my Christmas present that year or one of those years. And uh, that book turned my brain upside down. You know, like I, I read it. Yeah, I used to joke that I would keep it under my pillow at night just in case I needed it. Um, and it really changed everything about the way I thought about food and the way I cooked. And it related, it was related so directly to what I was doing at that restaurant. Um, and, you know, you know how it is when you're a sous chef, like, the better you are at your job, the more responsibility you get, but you love it. You know, it's like, I had to learn to butcher all the fish and the, the better I got at it, the less chef did, you know, like instead of bringing in fillets, he would bring me in whole fish. And that was, that was the lesson. And that was like, we're going to get a better yield and we're going to, but I loved it. So, you know, when the opportunity came up to make sausage, you know, he showed me how to do it. And then I, we, I started doing it and I just dove, dove in, uh, you know, making pancetta, like doing all these things that we hadn't done there before, just because I wanted to do it because I'd read this book. And then for Christmas, he bought me a whole pig. That was, that was my Christmas present. We had a great year. We had great holidays. New Year's Eve was a big success. And so a couple of days later, I'm, someone tells me chef needs to see in the prep kitchen in the basement. And he's walking down the hallway with a 300 pound hog whole on a, like on a Giridon and he's just, you know, walking in with this hog and he's like, there you go. Merry Christmas. And he's like, do whatever you want. He's like, let's cook the ribs for the staff. But other than that, do whatever you want. Like what a Christmas present with so much work. And I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but I, but I loved it. I stayed at work from like all night. And I had one other cook that wanted to help me. And we broke the thing down. I remember it so clearly what a bad job I did butchering that pig. Uh, just cause I, you know, I didn't know. Um, but we put some of the stuff on the menu and we cured some things and we, you know, we made some salami that failed and we made pancetta that came out great. And like that whole pig was one big experiment and the, the highs were tremendous and the lows were frustrating, but you know, just made me want to do more. So from then on, any chance I had to work with a, a whole animal or a big piece of something, or to make a sausage or to try and cure something like that's all I thought about. And I, like I left that restaurant and I worked at another kind of fancy high-end restaurant thinking I needed that in my life. And I really didn't. And I, you know, that only lasted so long. And I kind of bounced around trying to figure things out until Allie and I were finally like, we need to open our own place. And the decision was immediate that it was going to be, you know, everything was going to come from local farms, produce, dairy, anything we could get, and that we were going to buy whole animals. And the only exception was beef because I just didn't know how to do it. And uh, beef is so massive. And we had, a, like, when we found a space, the walk-in was so tiny. And that's where, like, that's where you really come into play because I would call the farmers and I'd say, what do you have that nobody else wants? 
And sometimes like back then I got a lot of hanger steaks cause nobody wanted them. But then when those got popular, it was, well, we have heart, we have tongue, we have liver, you know, once in a while I would be like, we, uh, we had a lot of sirloins we're sitting on. I'll give you a good deal. And it was like, that was like Christmas, you know, that was like the best gift ever was like a steak that people know. But in that time, like we became the awful place. The number of people that came in and said, have you been doing Kanto? Cause like, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of that, you know? And I was like, I've never been lucky enough to get out there, but like, I, and literally like I study the menu every day and it's true. Like I'm not, not here to, to blow smoke. I study, I, I looked at your menu every day from like 2003 and till like 2010. Crazy. Somebody, you know, cause, up, cause ironically, somebody just, one of my guys who worked with me for years, Thomas Cialetti was my pastry chef. Um, came in as a culinary intern, became my pastry chef, super brilliant guy, uh, posted a menu from 06. I saw that post and I'm looking at that menu thinking, God, I, I ripped this off so hard. <laughs> it was just, but that was at that point, it wasn't even just that anymore. It was the chalkboard too, right? Like we had the chalkboard. Yeah, oh yeah. Same. I had a chalkboard. And and I think, <laughs> but to see that, that is like the the traditional way that I think is really relevant that we try to help the farmers do the best they can with what they have. And yeah. you can give the consumer, the guest, your client an experience with a cut of meat they aren't traditionally used to. It will in turn help the farmer in the long run because they'll go back sure. and buy one of those cuts to learn to do it at home. And that's always, yeah. been, you know, um, you know, I never did anything new. I just, I just, wrote on the backs of thousands of grandmas before me. I was just, yep. I just asked a lot of questions, read a lot of old books. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, I feel fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. But I think Same. it's just, you know, there's a lot of people who've been doing it for years that never left their home kitchens, which to me is, that's where some of the best cooks in the world are. Sure. And yeah, and a lot of it's how you kind of present that to people. When people people will look at a dish and say, how did you come up with this? And I'd be like, I mean, grandmas in Sicily have been doing this for centuries. I'm just, you know, charging you money for it. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just have the opportunity to, you know, one of the best compliments I ever got was from, you know, you know Giuseppe Tentori. Yeah. So Giuseppe came in to eat and, you know, it was a big deal, like whenever a big time chef comes into your restaurant like you take it super seriously and you want them to be happy so i had a tripe dish on the menu um and it was classic um napolitano like with the with the royale yeah so you know i i'm sure i i, I know that i went to your website and read about how to cook tripe and cooked the tripe cut it up made the tomato sauce like we did you know we heat it up add the chilies add the the, uh, the parsley the basil the mint and all that stuff and then eggs and parm we mix it all together put it in the thing uh, we had a little cassuelas put it in there breadcrumbs you know get it nice and hot and crispy and i sent it out to him i was nervous and i went to the table and i was like how's the tripe and he stands up and he gives me the biggest bear hug and then he just sits down and, and keeps eating and i was like okay i think i did okay but like you know i didn't invent that dish you know, and we like, I was like, I got 30 pounds of tripe in because it was all I could get. Couldn't get some less than that. And it sold out. 
And it was, you know, these little appetizer portions. And I was like, I'm going to be sitting on 28 pounds of tripe in, in three or four days and no one's going to want this. And it sold out and people were like, oh man, Rob's cooking tripe and it's amazing. And it was like, yeah, it, it's, it's a recipe that's been around for but that, eons. But that's really important because it had fallen out of favor and nobody wanted mm-hmm. to do it. And I think that's sure. the part that's really important, right? It's like, of course, there has to be time and place, but there also has to be an understanding of history before you can create future. And if exactly. people think about it in that fashion, we've lost because if we don't teach the traditional ways and keep those traditional ways moving forward, they're going to vanish. Yeah. Well, you were just, I think it was the Sawyer episode. You were saying there's no new food. And no matter how many hydrocolloids you put into something and, you know, however it looks on the plate or floats over the plate or whatever people are doing now, like, you know, the, the techniques might evolve and we might have more things at our disposal to make stuff seem new, but, but the, at, at its core, it's still the same food that people have been cooking forever. And if it's not, then it's probably not going to be a very good dish. It's so interesting, right? I mean, the perception right. of, Perception versus reality of food is very powerful. Yeah, totally. So you've opened this restaurant. What's happening now? <laughs> so the restaurant story is 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 uh, is 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 fraught. Um, you know, we we didn't find investors. We found somebody who had a space, had a lease, had a business license, and was looking for somebody to hire to run the restaurant. But they didn't want to be they wanted to be like in the background and they wanted us to to run our concept and be the face of the place, which ultimately was the best case scenario because we were employees. We were not partners. We were not owners. Um, and this is another situation where, like, we should have done a little more due diligence. But this guy was the worst. So, you know, we were popular. We were busy. We were getting great write ups. We got we were in the 2009 episode uh, uh, issue of. Um, Bon Appetit's uh, best new restaurants in the country. I think it was the first year they did it, which like totally took us by surprise. But we got great three-star review from the Tribune. We got uh, a write-up in the New York Times. Like we had a lot of momentum and it was great. Like it was really satisfying because, you know, young husband and wife, small staff, like really very familial like our front of house and back of house, everybody got along and we, we all kind of believed in what we were doing. And our, we had regulars every night and it was just a very satisfying thing to do. But we didn't know where any of the money was going. We knew we were making it. We just didn't know where, you know, and there was always a, it was like, oh, well, we had to pay this or we had to do that or this thing came up or, you know, there was always a reason why we weren't making any money. So we couldn't hire, like the, the line every night was, I was expediting and working essentially two stations. My sous chef was working the wood grill and the rotisserie. And then Allie would come in in the morning and do all the pastries and she would run the dining room at night. And then we had one other person who did garbage and pastry and a dishwasher. And, you know, it was really, really hard. And we knew we couldn't hire any more people because we never had any, any, any budget for that. So after a couple of years, we just decided that, you know, our well-being as people was far more important than you know the next review the next write-up the next anything like the accolades didn't matter because we were miserable uh in the meantime 
we stopped doing brunch service because once or twice a month, we would do a pig butchering demo in our dining room. And it was popular enough to where it was more revenue than we made serving brunch. Um, and so the, like the butchering and the charcuterie thing, like, you know, nobody else was really doing that until Publican opened. Um, so we had some momentum going there and, um, you know, um, Marissa Gujana, her book, uh, Primal Cuts came out and yep. she, we were in it, you were in it. Um, she had sent us a little teaser before it was published and we're flipping through it. And there's like all the guys from the meat hooker in there. And one of my, uh, one of my employees was like looking at the meat hook page and was like, that's what you guys should do. And like later that night, Allie was like, maybe that is what we should do. And I was like, yeah, or we could close this place and I could go get a job at a country club and make six figures and work a 40 hour work week. And she was like, yeah, but you'll be miserable. Like, yeah, you're, well, you're right, <laughs> but I could do it. Um, so instead we talked to a couple of really good customers who were happy to give us some, some startup capital. And we found a really inexpensive space in a building in a neighborhood that nobody was interested in. And um, we opened Chicago's first locally sourced whole animal butcher shop. That was the tagline. Uh, and that's when we really dove into like whole beef and everything. You know, uh, I was cutting whole beef, like not really sure what I was doing, but figuring it out and getting better each time. Uh, but I staged with the guys at the meat hook and I'm still friends with them. And they sh showed me how to butcher beef. And, you know, we, uh, we put this thing together on a shoestring and people were into it. So yeah, we, we had a giant Bacchanalian blowout one night where we invited all of our guests, all of our favorite regulars to come in. And there was like, you know, blood sausage and porchetta and foie gras and tripe and truffles. And we just went nuts. And then the next morning we packed all of our stuff into a U-Haul and moved to the new space. Um, that space, the owner of the building was a huge food nerd. Um, like, put himself through culinary school just for the heck of it. And he was just like, I think this business is cool and I want you guys to stay a while. So he charges, I think he charges like 1500 bucks a month in rent. And that was it. There was no, like we paid our own utilities, but there was no like, you have, you, you know, I get this much of the profit or you have to pay this much of my property taxes. It was none of that stuff. It was just, it was like an apartment lease because he just wanted something cool in his building. So yeah, we, uh, we moved out early in the morning and we moved in the next day and took us a few months to get open. But yeah, uh, the night before we opened, Dally told me she was pregnant. That wasn't any pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That always but, uh, fire under your ass, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. It sure did. But I mean, we were busy from day one. So, you know, I, uh, I felt very fortunate that people were into this crazy idea of, you know, like we had a, a butcher shop and it was like, everything was out in the open. Like we worked on a table that was right behind the counter. Guests would come in and they'd see our little meat case and they'd see us cutting animals. And some people, most people were into it. And a few people were like, you guys are crazy. Um, and, you know, here we are. So we, we were at that tiny little shop for like four and a half years. And then this other company approached me. We had been working with them already. And they said, we're opening this business and it's going to be wholesale and retail. And the original idea was that we would kind of anchor the retail store, but also start working, excuse me, start working on a wholesale wholesale program. And we wanted to do wholesale cuts and we want to do wholesale charcuterie and cured meats and stuff like that. 
and you know that became a lot more difficult than we anticipated um and the retail store like our end of it the butcher shop did pretty well in the new space and that's that's what you saw that was when um that's when that whole thing happened like we had a big ray we had a 60 foot rail with carcasses hanging I, and a cold I room. remember coming in and seeing that and being like holy cow literally yeah, it was cows. wild cows <laughs> yeah literally holy cow um you know like um i remember like the first time i tried to break uh, a quarter on the rail because i'd been like i learned kind of the european style you know bench breaking everything i was like literally on the phone with dave budworth you know dave yeah so like is he's the only person i knew that had experience breaking on a rail so i'd be like all right i got the hind quarter hanging i found the tri-tip what do i do and he's like well follow the seam you know it's like okay hold on and i'm like, like i got the tri-tip off what do, how do i how do i get the short line off of the round and he's like okay find the joint like like literally talking me through it the whole way i love dave he's been such a friend he's in the all best. of this he's, oh, and he's, he's one of the best he's so good so good um but yeah so that i mean that was great and that was really like the restaurant and the butcher shop the first version of the butcher shop we got more and more into charcuterie so lots of pates of all kinds of things different riettes and then we started doing dry cured stuff um, and there really wasn't a lot of that. I mean, it was like, it was Karin at Vivek, who was like my hero with all that stuff. And I was just telling the story, but like when I was still sous chef, I would make stuff and I'd bring it to her. I'd say like, I'm going to stop by again in a few days. Tell me if this is any good or what I need to do. And she, she's running this insanely busy restaurant and she's taking time to tell this, this idiot whether or not his guanciale is any good. And it like means the world to me. Like I tell her every time I, I come like cross paths with her, I'm like, you have no idea. Like how much, if I have any success right now, you're at the root of it. And she's like, Oh no, no, no. But it's like, it's true. You know, I could say the same thing about you. Like you were fundamental in me getting to where I am now. And it's, it's not just blowing smoke. Um, which really shapes the way I try and work with my people. Um, but anyway, back to the story. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of where that seed was planted. And, you know, after uh, about four years with this other company, um, you know, there were some there were some problems with the business and uh, um, they brought in a new CEO. And this guy was like, he just had a different way of thinking about things. And he didn't really see any value in me being in my butcher shop. And he thought I would be better suited to work in the wholesale department and be a sales rep. So for a year and a half, I would drive around the city and I would go to my friend's restaurants and I'd be like, hey, you should buy from us. We've got really great arugula and, uh, you know, produce and stuff. And they'd be like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, but, you know, I was on salary and I had benefits and I had a wife and I had a kid and it was like, I'll see how long I can I can last doing this. And who knows? Maybe I'll like it. I never liked it. I was miserable. So I ran into Paul at an Alex's Lemonade thing and uh you know paul knows everyone and he knows everything so he comes over to me he's like what's going on with you and i was just like oh. i was like i can't talk about it now but i was just like if you are willing to go get a cup of coffee i could really use some advice so sure enough being the wonderful person that he is like he and i met a few days later we sat down for a cup of coffee at a coffee shop. And I told him the whole story and I wasn't asking for a job. I was just asking for advice. 
And the first thing he said was that uh, he was looking for somebody to take over the publican. And I like had to shift my brain a little bit to be like, can I do that? Can I be a chef again? And I did a tasting and I was really kind of focused on getting back into that mindset. And then not long after that, um, he called me and he said, forget about the publican. We need somebody at PQM. And I was on the phone with him and I said, yeah, I don't know. I think I want to stick with the publican job. And I hadn't gotten the publican job. I was just like applying for it and tasting for it. And I was like, I think that's where I'm focused right now. And he's like, okay, well, think about it. And I you know, hung up. And then like 10 minutes later, I was like sitting at my stupid desk doing stupid stale stuff. And I was like, what the hell's the matter with me? Like, this is perfect. This is absolutely the dream job. So I called him back and I was like, everything I said on our last phone call, please forget about it. I will take the job. You know, like I will start as soon as I can, like, you know, I, uh, I like, this is perfect because I can butcher, I can cook, I can cure meat, I can make pate, I can do events, I can do, you know, all this stuff. And I have, I have the benefit of this amazing company behind me. And like, why wouldn't I take this job? Like, forget about the public and this is where I need to be. Like, not where I want to be. This is where I need to be. This is funny to me and, to hear this. Like, no, I want to be the chef of the publican. What are you thinking? You've been butchering for years. Why would you? Right. Yeah. And it's Nobody like, you think about it, like stop. my. Nobody like, just want to stop doing that part and just do what you were doing. Like that was like. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's one of those, like, you know how it is. It's like you focus on something and you're so committed to it, whether it's a dish or whether it's a project or whether whatever, you get so focused on a thing that you can't think about anything else. And that's where I was. And then thankfully something snapped in my brain and I was like, I'm an idiot. And I called and I called him back. And so then we met like a week later, it was me and, um, and you remember Kim Leali. So she was calling her at the time, the two of us met and they were like, well, we just want to talk a little bit about why we think you should be a PQM. And I was like, this is not a conversation we need to have. There's no convincing. I want to be at PQM. Like it is perfect. It is absolutely the perfect place for me. And it's where I want to be. So, you know, we did the thing and they were like, Maybe you shouldn't put in your notice just yet because, uh, you know, we want to, I was like, stop. If I, if you're offering me the job, I'm accepting and I cannot wait to put in my notice. So I'm going to go do that now and we won't tell anybody. We'll keep it a secret, but until you tell me, we can tell whoever we need to tell, but like I'm putting in my notice today and you tell me when my start date is. So yeah, that was, that was a big moment. Um, and I, you know, I will say it forever, 2019, when I started was the best professional year of my life. It was just, I mean, it was the dream, you know, like I started and they like that company welcomed me and they wanted my ideas and they wanted me to know, like they, they wanted to hear what I wanted to do with that space. And, uh, you know, I walked into an amazing staff people, um, you know, guys like Kyle, who I talked about earlier. Um, and they, you know, they, I, I had ideas for how to how to redo the case and I had ideas for the curing room and we started working on menu stuff and they just supported everything I wanted to do. And, you know, I got invited to do some events and teach some classes and, you know, just do all this great stuff. And it was just an amazing year and the numbers supported it. Like it was so cool. Uh, and then COVID happened and, you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, COVID happened and everything changed. Yeah, it really, I mean, you know, that was another, another big 
moment where with, with, with you was, um, I think it was summer of 2020, we couldn't do our Tuesday night burger night anymore because we couldn't have people in. So we did burger night to go. And instead of inviting in guests, I, you know, I leveraged Paul's relationships and I called well-known chefs all over the country. And it was like, oh, tonight we're going to do an Andrew Zimmern burger. And next week we're going to do a Tom Colicchio burger. And then we did a Chris Cosentino burger. And one of the things I tried to do with guys like you was like, I've got a small staff down here and they think it's cool that we're cooking your burger. If you have five minutes, then maybe we can FaceTime and you can just say hi to the cooks and we can talk for a quick second. And, you know, you, like I had my phone on reverse and it was like me and two other cooks on FaceTime and you talked to us for, I don't know how long, but then you and I talked for like, I don't know, another half an hour. I was just sitting in my office and we were just commiserating about how hard everything is. And that's when you told me about Coxcomb. It's like, I don't think it was like officially announced yet, but you're like, yeah, we're closing, man. Like this, I, you know, I could tell that your mind was just, you had a lot going on. And like, I really appreciated that moment because it was like, this is as hard as this is for me, I'm still open and I'm still running and I'm still able to do some stuff. And like, you know, uh, I think a, a year or two prior, I ate a coxcomb and had an amazing meal. Like you weren't there, but somehow you knew I was going to be there. And like, we just got treated like royalty. It was like me and, and a friend who uh, lo- who lived in San Francisco and his wife. And like, it was just an amazing meal. The food was delicious. The service was amazing. And it was so much fun. And it was everything I wanted it to be. And it's like, yeah, we're closing. And I was just like, really heartbroken for you. Um, but you know, that connection is what I think makes, makes these relationships important. You know, it's like, you're not just superstar Chris Cosentino who I've been following forever. Like you are a real person and a real business owner and you go through the same shit that the rest of us do. And it's just, it's probably harder, you know? And it's like, I've my, my whole career, I've tried to find these little lessons in these things to make everything that we do in this crazy industry more bearable. It's an interesting part of the business that I don't think people realize, like we're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. We're all pulling the oars in the same direction. It's just uh, some of us are in different cities. Some of us are dealing with different problems. You know, I just think it's it's a lot harder for people to understand, you know, until you're in the totally. shoes, you know, and, yep. and I think we get it. We can talk to each other about it. Like we can commiserate, but we can't like we can always try to help each other solve each other's problems. Sure. Yeah. Never have the exact solution, which is really tough. Like there are moments, you know, and it's always funny. It's almost like a lot of us know each other are in the shits and we magically reach out at the most necessary time, but not really realizing it. Sure. And it happens all yeah, the time. And, yeah. And sometimes the most beneficial part of that is just knowing that somebody else you respect is going through it too. Yeah. I think you it's know, like that. Yeah. It's like, it's not, you're not alone. It's not just you. It's not, you're not the only one close. Like, you know, here I am trying to run this cool little butcher shop and stay afloat. And meanwhile, fucking blackbirds closing. Dude. You know what I mean? That hit me with a baseball bat to the teeth. Yeah. I mean, every, the whole city, the whole, really the whole food scene. And because like, I don't know that cooks now in Chicago even fully understand how seminal that restaurant was, how it affects everything they do, um, you know, and, and they're, 
have been plenty of stories and plenty of things written about it. Um, but part of me, like working for this company, part of me is, is letting everybody who puts on an apron in my kitchen, under, like they have to understand how fundamental that restaurant is in dining in the U.S., like it not just Chicago side of the bridge, right? Think about it. it. It changed the whole city, Chris. And I, and I've said this a million times. Oh so much. Like the trajectory of Chicago dining is, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you had Le Francais and the TT de Paris, which is where I work and, and Everest and Ambria. And you had yes. these, these wonderful restaurants, you know, and even further back, you know, uh, uh, was it La, La Pyrenees and like all these places, old school French, and they were amazing but they were of a place in time. And then like bursting through that was Charlie Trotter and it was still cut from the same cloth, like, you know, fancy fine dining, you know, Bernardo China and all that stuff. Um, but the food itself was, was pretty revolutionary. Um, and, and that was an amazing thing. And, but then 97 Blackbird comes along and it's the same quality product. It's the same attention to detail. It's the same amazing technique, but it's, it's, it's jazz. It's rock and roll. It's, it's, it's punk rock. It's like, it's really like Fun. putting a boot in the face of, of this, of the establishment. And it's like the way the place looked and the way the place sounded in the open kitchen. And I mean, it would just, it changed everything. And like as a city, every restaurant that's doing anything that's that's cool or hip or funky or weird like we owe it to, to paul and donnie and edward and richie and those guys because they were the ones who said we're going to do this in a way that makes us happy yeah and you know like can you imagine paul Kahn running a dining room like charlie trotter's like running a restaurant like that can you imagine donnie like no. walking through the dining room you know like trying to like it's just those guys broke through and did something different. And it's, it's an important piece of history. They and you know, maybe they inspired so many of us to be ourselves. Yeah. And I think absolutely. Paul is Paul and Donnie. I mean, Paul is one of my great friends. You know that um, mm -hmm. they inspire me daily. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just powerful. The team that has been built the camaraderie, the supportiveness, everything that they're doing. And when they started, I remember. I remember when it opened. I remember watching. I remember seeing Paul win Best New Chef. I remember sure. all of that. Every when that best When that Best New Chef issue came out, I was still cooking at Park Avenue. And, you know, I'm sure you've been there, but like that episode, that issue comes out and somebody brings it in. And we all stop what we're doing and like a bunch of cooks are like huddled around one copy of a magazine and we're flipping through every page and looking at every page. And there's Paul and there's Blackbird and there's, you know, all of those iconic photos of that space. And everybody looks at me and they're like, you know, this guy, you're Chicago, you know, this guy. And I was like, no, but I'm gonna. And that was, I mean, that was literally when we decided to go back to Chicago, there's the first call I made was the Blackbird to set up a stage. And, you know, Nobody left, so he couldn't hire me. He didn't have a job for me because people would, he would hire people and they wouldn't leave. So I, you know, didn't have a job there. Um, but man, I, uh, I just like, it was another place. Like I, I would drive, I would get out of my car just to go look at the menu posted outside. You know, well, this is what's interesting, right? This is like pre big internet, right? And oh, yeah. 
And I think that is a big part of like, like you said, the magazine would come out, we'd all get it, mm-hmm. get one copy and everybody would like, look at it. Who is it? Who's it going to be? Like, there was no teasers. There was no Instagram. There was no internet. There was none of it. If you wanted a menu from someplace, you had hoped to God that your chef had done an event somewhere else mm-hmm. and gone to eat there and brought back a menu and you begged to make a photocopy of it. Yeah. My, uh, our, our first wedding anniversary we was uh, like three weeks after Avec opened. And that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's where Ali and I went for our first wedding anniversary. So we're one year older than Avec. Um, and then when they did the 20th anniversary this year, I found the menu. And I was like, I have a menu from like your, this is your first menu. They were BYOB. The bacon stuff dates, uh, bacon wrap dates weren't on the oh. menu yet. Like, like this is history in my hand. And behind that was a menu from Blackbird. And, you know, and on and on and on. Like, I have a box with a stack of menus in it. You were talking to somebody recently on the, or one of the ones I listened to recently about the Wednesday Times. Oh, yeah. You know, like every Wednesday. Oh, yeah. You know, we found, like, Allie and I would find find a copy of the Times and we'd go to a coffee shop and we'd sit there and we'd pass pages back and forth. Um, And that was, I think, the first place I learned about Paul Bertoli was that there was a big article in the Wednesday Times about charcuterie. Like, is this coming back? Is this a thing? Like, what's happening in this country? And like, they talked to, to Paul, Paul Bertoli, and they talked to Karen because Avec had just opened and she was she was doing that stuff. And, you know, they talked to lots of other people, but like, that was a big deal. And that's how we got information. You read, you went to Barnes and Noble and, you know, sat there and read all their books and you looked at people's menus and you read the times, you know, like that era is gone. You know, like, I feel like I'm the last one. I think, and you know what, not to, not to negate now, but I think it's just, it was a relevant time that forced us to, to search out that information. It wasn't so easily accessible. And, um, that to me was really, was a really important time. Yeah. And you know, the, the thing that I, that I miss about that is that like, it's great how much information we have at our fingertips. Like to be able to learn about something by going to YouTube and looking at 10 different videos or to go to somebody's website or to, so whatever, to be able to have all this information is it's, it's great, but there's also a lot of smoke and mirrors. You can watch a YouTube video and it's like, you don't really know how they got from the start of that video to the end of that video. Um, I think that having to find that information and do like real old school research weeded out a lot of people, you know, like the people who are willing to put in that much time and that much effort were the people who were better cooks and better sous chefs and better servers and and better chefs. And just, you know, those are the people with that insatiable sense of curiosity and need for information and stimulation. Like those are the people that, that push things forward, whether it's pushing things forward in that they're going back in time and learning how to cure meat or whether it's, they're pushing things forward, you know, in the Alinea sense, like that was, that was an important thing for me, like seeking out this information and and like, how many times have you talked to chefs about notebooks? Like looking at books and like scribbling things down, you know, the stacks I have in my garage of notebooks are like, it's crazy. Um, You know, and now, now you see a lot of people who have seen some YouTube videos and watched some cooking shows and they think they know something. And it's like, well, you know, a very surface level idea about this. And if you want to dig in, I'm your guy. If it's too much work to take all the silver skin and all the connective tissue off of a piece of pork for you, then I'm not your guy. And this isn't for you, you know, and it's, it, it, it's, 
it's hard. It's a different time. You know, it takes a lot of adjusting for guys like us. It is. And, and, you know, not to, like I said, not to, to be negative about what's going on currently. I just think I, I chose the hard path because mm-hmm. I needed to choose the hands-on hard path. That sure. was my way of dealing with things because I was that. And I think a lot of people have better options now than I did. Right. Sure. Um, I'm dyslexic. I'm ADD. I didn't do well sitting in school. I never was able to sit long enough to read a book until I became a culinary student. And still then I struggled because the culinary school books that I had had no images. So being dyslexic and the instructor talking really fast, I had to learn a new way to figure out how to use my hands, how to understand the process, how to understand why. La Technique and La Method was the only books with pictures from start to finish. Mm -hmm. How to do oh yeah, that. and if it wasn't for I, sure, I wouldn't I wouldn't be you know here now, right? Yeah, I think yeah. one of the first books that that I ever got that was like I don't know that I really took a lot in terms of like dishes or anything from it, but like somebody gave me um, Alfred Portale's Gotham book. Oh, great book! Great book, but like beautiful pictures, and the pictures were so relevant to to the to the recipes and like the recipes were well-written and it was like a book you could, for people like us, you could read that cover to cover. And from then on, I was like, there's so much information in, in books about what, you know, like that set really set me on a path of just devouring book after book after book. Um, and, you know, it's like, I've heard you talk about this so many times, you know, and like, to me, it directly correlates to my life as a, a struggling musician. Like I am convinced that everybody in the world has has that one thing that they're great at and you know some people find it and some people don't and when you find it then all of the issues you have learning anything else that you're supposed to learn that all goes away because you're you're somehow able to focus on that one thing that you're good at you know and and for you and I it was food and it, for me it very much wasn't music like i i knew that struggle of putting so much effort into something that I wanted to be good at and not getting the results and just having this lack of, you know, like I was very talented, but there's a difference between talent and that sort of innate natural ability that, that allows you to process the information without even realizing how you're doing it. And then that happened with, with cooking, with whether it was just retaining information in my brain or whether it was, taking these ideas and translating them onto the line, like not even onto the plate because you spend so long doing other people's plate ups, but like being able to think clearly and logically about how to work a station, like that's hard. How to set up a, like how many times would you work a station at a restaurant and go home and think every night about how to set it up better? Drawing diagrams in your notebook, you know, until you're so good at it that that's another thing you can teach them. Like, I'm not going to teach you how to cook. I'm going to teach you how to set a station. And that's a more valuable skill. I remember. Yeah. I mean, it's everybody has their different processes, right? Like I used Mm -hmm. my ADHD. I used, I refused to wear a digital watch because I needed the numbers on my watch for second hand to go from number to number. So for Mick going from number to number was the different jobs I was working. So I would have seven things going. And every time the second hand would Mm -hmm. hit one, to, I would go, okay, check on that, check on that, check on that, check on yeah. that. Or teaching somebody when you're put, when you're building the dish in the pan, 
count your number of ingredients and you should have them mm -hmm. in, in a line. What goes in first is the farthest away. One, two, and we're yep. backward. Those little things that we don't, that are become innate to us because we've been mm -hmm. doing it. It's passing that information on now to the next generation. And I do always say to people, set it up the way that feels comfortable to you, but this is how I would set it up. Yeah. And that's, you know, like, like, it's like, it's like building a dish. Like everything has to, has to be balanced. Like, you know, like I, it seems comfortable to you to have your squeeze bottles all the way down there, but why? Yeah. Doesn't it make more sense to do it this way? And if you're a little uncomfortable for one service or two, because you're not used to it, like work through it my way, because I've been doing this for 26 years and then maybe it'll make more sense and get more comfortable. And then you'll see what I mean. And like the good cooks will listen to you and they'll, they'll do it. And they'll be like, they'll come to me and be like, I, now I get it, you know? And it's like those, those skills that, you know, and that, that's the thing that clicked for me. It was like, you know, you realize why you're doing what you're doing and how much sense it makes and how, how it just clicks in your brain. And you're like, this is, this is where I should be. This is where I need to be. And this is how, like, you know, now that I've done this, I can't wait to move on to this next thing. Like one of my favorite stories, it's a quick one, but like I worked at, before I went to New York, I worked in this fancy French restaurant and I worked with this guy. We were on the fish station and I kept asking him to teach me how to butcher fish. And we would get these giant halibut and whole salmon and stuff like that. And he would show me how to do it. And I would say, okay, is it cool if I come in tomorrow and butcher the fish? And he loved it because he's, you know, a little, little older than me. He'd kind of settled in you know, I don't want to say complacent, but, you know, uh, there was right behind the restaurant, you go out the back door, there was a bowling alley with an arcade. So we'd come in and he'd, uh, he'd set me up and I'd get, I'd start butchering fish and he'd go play video games for an hour and a half. And then he'd come back and make sure that everything was done and portioned. And then we'd set up the station together and work service. And he got away with it for months. Chef never knew where he was, never cared, just assumed everything was fine. And I didn't tell on them because I wanted to keep butchering fish, you know? So, I mean, everybody has those amazing stories of learning yeah. processes. Like I, when I was at Johnson and Wales, I was a teaching assistant and we had to manage a restaurant, right? We worked mm -hmm. their restaurant, which was called J Wales. It was a seafood restaurant. And I remember chef Frank Mullaney came in and he was like, every movement you make, needs to actually be so hyper efficient it needs to equal mm -hmm. steps and i was like okay so he literally took tape and put tape through the pass down the walk-in down the like down the regions across the floor and up the range to show me where i was not allowed to go <laughs> he basically boxed me in yeah and he said you have to work in this space yeah and he taught me Basically, we called it the pirouette. I would spin on one foot back and forth, back and forth, sure. back and forth. And I'll never forget that moment because I do recall spilling a full 750 of, of red wine all over a chef coat during service. Oh. <laughs> but it was that moment that showed me how to be consolidated because I was so mentally scattered. Um, and then from that moment on, everything just got tighter and tighter and tighter. Yeah, it's funny how like, when you're a young cook, you walk into like a big hotel kitchen or a place like, you know, like Danielle, where the kitchen is just sprawling and beautiful and copper and everything. And you're like, this is, this is the dream. But then the longer you do it, you're like, that's what I loved about Veritas was the kitchen was the size of my bathroom and the walk-in, like I had to duck to get into the walk-in and it was in the basement. And 
<laughs> I, I did a stage at, at, uh, at Blue Hill in the city and the walk-in was like literally, I think four feet tall and everything in there was stacked in milk crates, floor to ceiling. And it's like, I love this. Everything is consolidated. I can't not find anything like nothing. There's nowhere for anything to get lost. There's no one for anyone to hide. Like these tiny little small cramped kitchens become more comforting than all the space in the world and all the toys in the world. And it's, it's, it's just like a funny way to, to think about things. We learn as we get older, right? You know, you want less is more sometimes. Less is more for sure. Yeah. So, and that, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that, 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 like that ability to never want to stop learning is like, you know, it's, it's the most valuable thing we have, especially as cooks. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, and the moment that somebody says, I know it all, you need to stop because you need to get out of the business because you're, you don't yeah. know. You, you can always yeah. learn something. You can always become more efficient. You can always become better. And that's learning to put your ego aside to mm -hmm. help from somebody that you may not realize has something to offer. Yeah. And like, I think it's the most, the, the healthiest thing you can do is, you know, when you feel like everything's running really well, then you just have to stop and say, well, what, what can I do better? What can I do better? You know, like, my line is solid. Those guys are going to be set up. They're going to put out great food every day. I have nothing to worry about. You know, my sous chef is crushing it. My production team is absolutely crushing everything. Salamis are coming out great. The mortadella is the best it's ever been. You know, it's like, so, so now what can I do? How can I be better? How can I, and, and it could be, you know, maybe I need to spend some time learning how to read a P&L better, you know, in, increasing my knowledge of how to do that because it's important. You know, it's not necessarily fun, but it's important. And if maybe if I get good at it, it'll be fun. Exactly. I think you know? that's a great point because, you know, we never, we never know it all. We can always learn more and we can always learn to ask for help. Of course. And, you know, and uh, that's what I love so much about this, about one-off is that, um, you know, I can ask for help. You know, I like whether it's, whether it's Paul or not you know, like Donnie's around all the time, all these guys are around all the time, but we've got like Brian Houston is back with the company and he's our culinary director. And I know that pretty much any time I can reach out to him and be like, I need to talk to you. And he's on the phone or in my kitchen just as soon as he can be. Um, and, you know, that's the hard part about being independent, you know, like everybody wants to have their own place, but when it's all you and you have no one to talk to, then you have to hope that you are, you know, liked enough in your community that maybe you can reach out to another chef. But like you said earlier, they can't fix the problem for you. Yep. You know, like the beauty of having somebody like Brian is that Brian can be fundamental into fixing the problem, not just for me, but, but with me, like, we're going to, we're going to take a look at this. We're going to talk to these people. We're going to figure this out and we're going to get it done. Uh, and it's, it's why I love this group so much. Cause that's really what they, what they want to be. And on that note, we're going to play a game because that's a perfect way um, to I'm terrified of this game. Because <laughs> you know the game. Ready? I know that. I've listened to it a million times and I still don't know my answers. But yeah, let's go. Coffee or tea? Coffee. With milk That's or without? Without. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Oatmeal or yogurt? Oatmeal. Bacon or sausage? See, that's not fair. That's fair to other people. It's not fair to me. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say sausage. I like sausage more than I like bacon. Chicken or duck? Chicken, hundred percent. Beef or pork? Again, kind of an unfair question. 
Uh, but I'm going to say pork. Quail or squab? Oh, man. I'm going to say squab. Hot dog, hamburger. Burger. Ketchup, mustard. Okay, I need to ask a question about this. I think about this every episode I listen to. Are you asking me ketchup and mustard in the context of my burger or outside of my burger? In general. Okay, I like sometimes, depending on the burger, I like ketchup on my burger and I like ketchup with my fries. That is where my love for ketchup stops. As a condiment in the world of condiments and things that I do, I like mustard better than ketchup. Whole grain or Dijon? It depends. I tend to go for whole grain when it comes to like making things. I tend to use Dijon as my mustard of choice as as an ingredient within a thing. Taco or burrito? Taco. What's your favorite taco? Whatever Carlos makes. Pasta. Carlos is one of is my 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 lead line cook, and if he's making tacos, they're going to be better than anything you've ever had. Pasta. Uh, or, okay, or noodles. Okay. <laughs> Avioli or dumplings? Ravioli. Raw oysters or raw clams? Um, I live in Chicago. My access to seafood is about as good as it gets in Chicago, but I have never had access to raw clams like you have. Um, I have had access to very good raw oysters, so I'm going to say oysters. Okay. Lobster or crab? Crab. What type of crab? Um, I love soft shells. I love Dungeness. Um, I had a very important meal at uh, Jardinier in San Francisco, and I had my first taste of Dungeness crab. It was big pieces in a salad with red and yellow endive and avocado and grapefruit. And I will never forget that dish. I have stolen that dish for tasting menus, uh, for like tastings for jobs. Um, if you see Tracy, please thank her for, <laughs> um, for putting that in my head. Um, so I'm going to say Dungeness is pretty important. Sea urchin or caviar? This is another hard one. Because the last time I think I had really good sea urchin was at Morea, and it was the uni toast with the lardo, yeah. which blew my head off. But I also had a really amazing moment on my honeymoon in Napa with Ali, where we went to Bouchon and had caviar service. And I think because of that, I am endeared to caviar. So I'm going to say caviar. Meatballs or sausage? Sausage. Well, <laughs> okay. My sausage in general, but my mom's meatball. Okay. Pizza style. Um, I'm going to represent, I'm going to say tavern style. Nice. First one yet. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's important. I like all kinds of pizza. Um, you know, I love all pizza. I don't, I even love bad pizza. I think bad pizza has its place. Um, but I do as a dyed in the wool Chicago and love tavern style pizza. Red wine, white wine, red wine, but I tend to go lighter red, light beer, dark beer. Light beer. White spirits, dark spirits. Dark spirits. Champagne, Prosecco, Cava, or Lambrusco? Oh, man. You know, when I have access to really great champagne, sure. But Cava, Prosecco, Lambrusco, to me, that's just like a good time. So any whichever one of those is cold and close to me. Ice cream, soft serve, gelato. I'm going to say gelato. 
cup or a cone? Uh, I'm going to say cone if it's really a really good cone. A waffle. So I like my, I'm, I'm, I'm like totally one end of the spectrum or the other. I like the shitty styrofoam cones. If that's my option, I would rather have that than a sugar cone. But if I can get a really good waffle cone, that that's the one. Isn't it funny that it's literally called styrofoam cone? That's <laughs> so gnarly. Oh yeah. I mean, they're terrible, but I love them. Yeah. You know, it's one of those childhood things. Yeah. Chocolate or fruit? This one has been killing me for, for like as long as it's been since you asked me to do this. Um, I think that I love the different fruits in season. Like I'm up to my ears in peaches right now and I love them. But if I could only have one thing for dessert for the rest of my life, it would be chocolate. Bitter or sweet? Both. Favorite candy? Reese's peanut butter cups, but not the traditional ones, either the minis or the, like the novelty holiday ones, like the Easter eggs or the Christmas trees. Honey or maple syrup? Maple syrup. Paul would kill me if I said anything else. <laughs> Guilty pleasure. Um, I think as long as it is legal and moral and ethical, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. You know, if you told me your favorite band was in sync and it was a guilty pleasure, I would say, you know, be proud of that. <laughs> I love that. You know, I, I think I think associating guilt with pleasure when it comes to things like food or music is doing us all a disservice. Last meal. My last meal, this is a question that I've known for a long time. Um, I would have uh, jambon beurre, great baguette, great ham, great butter. I would wash it down with a very, very good cup of coffee. And then I would have a table covered in my wife's desserts, whatever she wants to make. She knows what I like. So, you know, I could pro probably predict what would be on that table. But yeah, like I totally have a sweet tooth and I would have my ham and butter, my coffee, and then just a gluttonous table full of my wife's baking. Thank you, Rob. So folks, if you need to find Rob, Rob, where can they find you? I am at Public and Quality Meats in Chicago. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at Rob underscore Levitt, L-E-V-I-T-T. And you have all sorts of fun stuff coming up. You're going to do your rotational burgers. You've got upcoming, you got folks, there's dinners that you can book there. Go there and get your meats. All the charcuterie, they are doing killer sandwiches. The pickles come in their own condom. <laughs> I was wondering, wondering if you're going to bring that up. You knew We're that was coming. Our... That we was are known for having the safest pickles in Chicago. Safest pickles in Chicago. They come with their own little individual zipper pack, which they do make the pickles <laughs> in the house. Definitely, this is my favorite stop. I've sent tons of people there when they're heading through. I know folks who get stuck at O'Hare. I send them in. They come into PQM and then head back. Don't. And we appreciate it. What Rob's doing. Um, Rob, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. I can't tell you how much this means.